This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday show. Those two things are highly correlated. There is, in fact, a causal relationship between each. It goes like this. Oh my God, it's Saturday. Better put up a show. So I was, and, and the shows that we do are one from the week and one from the vaults. But the one from the week this week is with Heather Cox Richardson, who was on this week. But it's not something that aired during the show. It didn't air during a Pesca Plus segment. One could argue that with podcasts, does anything really air? Of course they do, air buds. But what I did was I came across an item about how she did her research by reading the New York Times. Doesn't seem impressive, except when I tell you, well, you'll find out. She read all of the New York Times. It's about a 10-minute conversation. It wasn't exactly germane to the life and death of our country that we were talking about. It was more about how she does her job. But I thought it to be a delight, and I thought that we should give it to you. And then, since we are in the realm of U.S. history, I bring you Lafayette. That's how I have to say it. He had the best flow of all the founding fathers. We learned that from the musical about Hamilton. I think it was also called Hamilton. And Lafayette was the subject of a book by Sarah Vowell, the always interesting and interesting to listen to Sarah Vowell. Sarah stopped by, not really virtually, although in that case, it might have been really, in 2015. I bring you that interview from Lodo's many years ago, and also Heather Cox Richardson, words that you haven't heard this week on The Gist. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. So you study history by, one of your methods was reading every page of the New York Times for decades. Is that right? Yeah. And that sounds so impressive. But remember, it's a four-page paper and two of those papers are ads. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. so essentially, <laughs> it's two pages. Uh, one of news, which is important, not least because that's the, if you'd come out of a committee in Congress, you would talk to a reporter and say what happened in the committee, because most of those closed door committees, we don't know what happened. And then one page of, um, of opinions. And so, yeah, I just sat down and read the New York Times, which was fascinating. From what year to what year? 
from, well, I'd already read the civil war for my first book. Um, so from let's, let's give me the civil war and then 65 to about 1905. And that, um, what happens then I've never written about, but it'd be a great book to, to write is how the Boer war affects American society and the way people think about race. I I've never done that, but somebody should, maybe somebody has, if I've, if I've stepped on someone's toes, I'm sorry, it was fascinating, but it wasn't my story. Yeah. So first of all, was, was the New York times then the closest thing we had to the paper of record? It was the, well, yes and no, the New York, what the New York times did was it was a paper that, that tried to represent in some fashion moneyed interests in New York, but it was also early on independence. So until the, the late 19th century, early 20th century, we, most newspapers are deliberately partisan. And the New York Times gets pissed off about that early on, even though it is technically still partisan, it's more even handed than say the New York Sun or the Chicago Tribune or the Indianapolis Daily. So um, it, it was just a good way to see what was happening. And then you could, it, it was also the only indexed paper so that you could look at what was happening at a certain event in the New York Times and then say, okay, let's go look and see what they're saying in Philadelphia in this same moment without having to read through all those papers, although I ended up doing a lot of those as well. Right. So the famous New York Times, without fear or favor, Adolph Oaks phrase precedes uh, the the vow to the New York Times will be nonpartisan unless it be, if possible, to intensify its devotion to the cause of sound money and tariff reform. So that's there. <laughs> well, yeah. Yes, and and early on, uh, the New York Times insists that any attempt to uh, level the economic playing field in America is socialism. They're doing that by 1871, and that's you know that's you just have to understand that that's going to be their bias going forward. Yeah, yeah, they were against peculation, which was the wrongful appropriation of uh, public property or money. Mm -hmm. So, but so as you read forty years of the New York Times, there's also the black press is uh, vibrant at the time and you know smaller newspapers do you get a sense that okay i know i'm not reading everything i know i there are many voices that are just not heard from but i am to the degree that's humanly possible getting my arms around the zeitgeist of that era does that is that the feeling you get well that's the intention but you've hit something really important and that's that nobody can do everything i will say i love what i do and i to me it's like being on the holodeck right in star trek where you don't know anything about something and you start to read about it and things start to come into focus and when when that world is complete and makes sense to me that i start a new holodeck so you mentioned the black press, for example, I think a lot of people don't know that the black press in America was extraordinarily vibrant in the late 19th century. There were hundreds of black newspapers and they were excellent black newspapers. And they are now not entirely, but at least partially available on microfilm. So that was something that was easy to get my hands around. Now, I don't easily read um, German and the German newspapers are incredibly important. I've never touched them. I don't read Asian languages. Um, I So... So I, though, those are missing from my work and that that's a loss and that's not one that I'm going to fix in my lifetime, but there are other historians who do read those languages who are fixing those things. Right. So best as the best you can, the best that you can, plus a few of your colleagues. Now we get a sense of history. That is history. But think about, as I'm sure you have, your... The, the next generation or the generation after who looks at what we have now. There is no, you can't read the New York Times and forget about just trying to read the New York Times 
everyone has a blog or a Substack or is posting on Instagram to try to read the accounts of an era, to try to read the accounts of a day is impossible. So how will this concept of defining history, understanding what our forefathers and foremothers meant, how will this even be possible just when you consider the sheer tonnage of information that's out there that we might try to attempt to get our hands around? There is no zeitgeist. There is no possible discernible zeitgeist, is there? Oh, it's worse than that because think of all the voices that are lost in history anyway, the people who can't read, can't write, or the people who simply are not in positions where they can preserve records. And then take it to the present where, for example, if if I were living and writing 50 years ago, I would have a collection of my letters. I'm a letter writer in case you hadn't noticed, but like I personally write letters as well. But I don't have that because they're all on email. And they're all going to be lost. All of that's going to be lost. So what will future historians do? And when I think about, about this moment, one of the things that jumps out to me right now, for example, is the Taylor Swift phenomenon that's happening as we're recording this. And the fact that so many, at, at least white American and I, I've not, I'm not studying this in a, in a, in a systematic way. So I don't know what that demographic is, but if you look at the thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people who are following this particular tour and it's, it's multi-generational, that's new. So maybe in the, I mean, it, it's new in terms of political movement, in terms of what that might say about politics. And so if I were looking at this trying to make sense of this in 150 years, maybe what I would do is go for pop culture and the huge numbers. I just don't know the answer to that. I do know that one of the reasons that I try and do what I do every night is to look at the major changes happening, what I think are major changes that historians will care about, and leaving a trail of breadcrumbs for that historian to say, oh, wow, it's really important that China has recently uh, joined a talks at Saudi Arabia about a possible peace deal between Russia and Ukraine, because that suggests a world realignment. But who the hell knows? Yeah. So this is what I think. I, I We say things like the judgment of history, or which you know um, can be used as a weapon. The Bush administration will say it like, don't judge us now. History will judge us. There is no one judgment of history. History always changes. But there was, and maybe it was uh, a myth or a fake idea, there was this promise, this possibility to understand it as a coherent story, history story. And I just think in the future that even the possibility of that, we're going to realize it's just not doable. And the idea that we could have a coherent story will have to be grappled with and jettisoned. And I think that looking back at the 2020s in the year 2070 will be a lot different from looking at the 1950s in the year 2023. I think it will be as information siloed as our current media is now. And I think it will be as choose your own reality as our current information systems are now because it will all be pulled from our current information systems. Well, that's depressing. Let me counter that with the idea that people are just people. And that 
at the end of the day, we're people who either want control over others or we're people who just want to have a fair existence, you know, have everything be fair for each other. And there are, I think, universal human themes. And I shouldn't say human because I only study America. There are universal American human themes that, that enable us to organize around, you were talking about early principles. And we may change what those principles are, but at the end of the day, we're just people. And where we get our information is going to change a lot. Who gets to have a say in that is going to change in part because of the ability to preserve what those records are. But I don't see us becoming a highly atomized world where there is no history. I think what's more interesting to me is who's going to tell that history, what theme is going to win, and whether or not that's going to be seen as a decline or as a triumph. Yeah, which theme is going to win? Um, I think that that is being played out and fought over now. But it, I, I suppose, has always been thus. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe my perception of um, history or the conception of history uh, as more an agreed upon story is uh, a romantic idea. Maybe there were history wars going on throughout history. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. There always are, because this is, you know, we're human beings. We make sense of ourselves through the way we remember the passage of time. And of course, people define themselves in different ways. So the way we think about that passage of time is going to be different. But I don't think we all think all that differently about what those themes can be. And so the themes that we play out, I don't think are going to change all that much. But again, who knows? That's what that's for the future. We're prophets of the past. Sarah Vowell is here. Her new book is Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. And somewhat is italicized, as is everything Sarah Vowell says. Hey, Sarah. A designer did that. I did not italicize. What would you, if you had to uh, punctuate or fonticize any of these words, what would they be? I don't know if I've ever said this title out loud. Should I try? Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. See, it just blended in there. Because I like to downplay. Right, exactly. I don't like to make a big deal out of anything. I think that voicing, especially, you know, you've yeah. you've done as many radio pieces as I have, but that is the amateur falls into the trap of going, and it was flooded. But you're, <laughs> what, what you're supposed to go, and it was flooded. Yeah. And then the flood no, that's washes what, over one you. thing. No, like everyone is in love with Amy Schumer, and I really like her too. But I really like how she just kind of like downplays all her punchlines. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. we have to be a role model for these little girls because who do they have? All they have, literally, is the Kardashians. And she doesn't have a Malala poster in her room, trust me. And is that a great message for little girls? A whole family of women who take the faces they were born with as like a light suggestion? Is that great? No. Lafayette, why him? Really, that's the question you're gonna ask? Sure. (laughs) I've asked all these irrelevant ones. Oh boy, Lafayette, why Lafayette? I mean, one of the reasons the is living you know, in living in New York City. I lived on near Union Square for yeah. about ten years, and there's that statue of him in Union Square. You know, the of the statue of Young Lafayette. It's on Union Square East, sort of between Fifteenth and Sixteenth. And I walked by him almost every day. He was kind of one of my neighbors. 
so he was my neighbor. But then also, um, I was very intrigued with not the, so much the story of him in the Revolutionary War, but when he came back to America in 1824, like almost a half century later, as an old man, the country went berserk. Like two thirds of the population of New York City met his boat. He he yeah, took eighty thousand out of like one hundred twenty-five thousand yeah. people supposedly. And, and so, like, and for a, over a year, it was like every night a party everywhere. Thousands of thousands of people. It was like the whole country loved him as one, and. We don't really have a lot of people, places, or things in this country that everyone agrees on. Right. And so that attracted me. I think you wrote Meryl Streep and Barbecue. Yeah. Those are I, the things we agree on. So put to understand how big Lafayette was, he's he was as big as Meryl Streep plus Barbecue. I would say even Willie Nelson level. Yeah. Yeah. With the crossover appeal. The yes. stoners love them. Crossover appeal. The old, yeah. yeah. Okay. So... But as a 19-year-old who is, who's given a pretty important— You're talking about Lafayette. I'm a little older than that. <laughs> as a, ni- as Sarah, a 19-year-old. As a 19-year-old. You've done so much in your <laughs> life. So as a 19-year-old, the commission he gets in the Army, is it an important one? Is it mostly for diplomatic reasons, like Washington's smart enough? Hey, we got to know to get the uh, French on our side. We'll throw this Lafayette's way. I mean, originally, it's kind of just an honor. He's basically a glorified intern, and they make him a major general, partly because— He's French, he's an aristocrat, and he's part of the court of Louis XVI, and the founders are trying like mad to suck up to Louis XVI. That's why they've sent Ben Franklin to basically shake him down for money because they want the French help. They want they want money, they want gunpowder, they want guns, they want cannons, they want sailors and soldiers. They just want the French to come help and they because Lafayette is close to the king. They decide to let him help out. And he also volunteered to work for free, which really like you know, they found yeah. appealing. And then, I mean, they kind of take him on because they don't want to insult the French court. But then it turns out he's very handy and he's very gung-ho and he fights and he wants to fight. And, you know, the Continental Army is plagued with deserters that this point and that the whole time basically because they're not getting paid or fed or shod so but here's this kid and all he wants to do is fight and help and he kind of endears himself to George Washington by like backing him up like Lafayette in his first battle the battle of Brandywine he gets shot and then he has to recuperate from that he gets shot in the calf and I mean he can't stay in bed he like puts a boot on his good leg and then wraps his bum leg in a blanket and rides back to the front. So, and he really endeared himself to Washington and and all the men because he was in it with them. Yeah, he's like Rudy or some sort of mascot figure. Is that a sports thing you're telling me? Yeah, no, I don't mean Giuliani. Okay. Yeah, Rudy. He was this <laughs> compelling figure who right. wasn't French but was short, which in college football is like the version of being French. Being French is still worse in college football, but... Probably true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. terrible. So does he become an actual good front fighter or just a uh, gung-ho mm. kid with piss and vinegar? I mean, yeah, he really, like... Um, has a knack for it. I mean, he comes from a long, long, long line of warriors stretching back to um, 
the Crusades and Joan of Arc. His male ancestors have been soldiers pretty much for hundreds and hundreds of years. He went to riding school and was part of the household troops of the King of France. I mean, even at 19, he has way more military experience than most of the Continental Army. And then he he just has a knack for... Let's call it military stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he knows how to, for one thing, he knows how to rally men. And also as a European, there are certain rules of warfare that he knows and and feels they need to be followed. But can we really say, but for this one guy, the French wouldn't have been as large a benefactors? I mean, you know, they no, hated I the mean, English. I'm not one of those, re- yeah. you know, we have all read these books where the especially like proper biographies where the writer makes it seem like if this subject of this book had never been born, yeah. you know, everything would have gone to hell and we would all be speaking German right yeah. now or Coincidentally, something. Coincidentally, the know. subject of the book I've <laughs> dedicated my life to. He's yeah. important and he kind of symbolizes to me, he personifies the importance of the French alliance in general. I mean, he is very important, but I think they could have lived without him, sure. Like, for one thing, right when he arrives, there's this whole conspiracy in the Congress and the Army to fire George Washington, who was, in the long run, a pretty handy person to keep around, right? And Lafayette just immediately attaches himself to Washington like a barnacle. I mean, one thing, he's an orphan. Washington doesn't have any kids. There's this kind of father-son relationship from the get-go. But um, this is like when... Lafayette arrives at 1777. I mean, Washington still has four more years of fighting left and then two more until the surrender that he has to, like, hang tough. So Washington has a long road ahead of him. And so just having this one kid who comes from, you know, one of the greatest militaries in the world backing him up and, like, standing with him and talking smack about his enemies who are supposed to also be his comrades, you know, I think that must have been enormously gratifying for Washington, just trying to buck up Washington to stick it out. I mean, Washington says as much. This is tangential, but I know you'd have a couple good thoughts. What do you think the biggest flaws of the Constitution are? (laughs) I mean, like one of them, you know... The whole three-fifths a person slavery thing is a problem. Well, it's a problem, but at the time, it was a brilliant compromise. I mean, you know, that's interesting. Like, uh, I remember, like, one of the things that stands out in the Ken Burns Civil War documentary is Shelby Foote talking about this and how the founders don't get enough credit for their genius being a genius for compromise, yeah. you know? And, and that's the difference with the French Revolution. It's not all about blood. But and it's chaos. easy for you and me sitting, you know, in this room in New York City to s- say, oh, to pat them on the back for their compromise. I mean, we're not one of those three fifths people. Right. But if it weren't, I've like. Yeah, I'm not telling you anything you don't know, but if there was no compromise and in the Constitution it said a black person was a vote, that would mean that all those slaveholding states would have such disproportionate power. It would be a greater un- injustice. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, I asked you about the flaws of the Constitution. I mean, it's, but like there is like actually, I mean, yes, this all is like intellectually fascinating, but um, like to me, the hardest page of that book to write was... Um, I'm writing about the euphoria when the uh, in the colonies when the French sign a formal treaty of alliance with the Americans. 
And like at Valley Forge, they're yelling, you know, long live the king of France. But then in Britain, they understand what this means. It means they're going to lose. And there's this little moment where some of the people in the British government are like, we got to get these guys back. They send this kind of half-hearted peace commission. And and the prime minister stands up in the House of Commons and, and says, like, we need to capitulate on everything they care about except independence and bring them back. Because, like, you know, he's basically saying we need to get them back. Yeah. And... When he says, like, we have to capitulate on everything, I think one description of the the members of parliament, it's just melancholy silence. And, like, I take a moment of silence because that moment when it's past the point of no return of going back to Great Britain, yay, you know, 4th of July, insert here, but... It also, I mean, if we had gone back to be part of Great Britain, they outlawed slavery in 1833, which is 30 years earlier than we did. Like, if we had capitulated and gone back to being, you know, colonies of Great Britain, that could have saved, like, a generation and a half of slaves from bondage. So maybe think about that next 4th of July. Uh, prefer to think of because I mean we're so dogs. ingrained to grow up in this country to be like rah 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 independence and I mean obviously we we believe that we believe that all men are created equal meaning like you can't just rule us because you were born to some guy who is ruling us you know but then if you believe all men are created equal what do you root for do you root for independence or do you root for going back to a situation where we get rid of slavery sooner what did Lafayette think of that? I mean, Lafayette was a total abolitionist, and he, in fact, purchased a plantation in French Guiana for the sole purpose of freeing those slaves and give, giving them wages and educating them. Like, he he was a member of, I think it was called the Society to Free the Blacks or something, and Robespierre is a member of that, too. He was a very staunch abolitionist. So, appreciating history and appreciating the fact that at in different times, people have different mores than today. Now there's this movement to expunge Jackson. Wait, do the, they? Th- oh, different mores so. in terms of whether we acceptable. we like someone for being an Indian fighter right. at one point and maybe find that distasteful later. Yeah, so later. what do you think about Jackson expunging him from the 20, the Democratic Party taking his name off the Jefferson-Jackson dinner? You're part Native American, I think I remember from that I am, episode. I am part Cherokee, and yeah. so both on both sides of my family, um, there were... Cherokees on the Trail of Tears. Right. So this is not just any any old tribe. No. This is the this was this his like great the, target. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, any kid who's even like a little bit Cherokee, I would imagine it's like being a little bit Irish. And you mention Oliver Cromwell, and everyone goes nuts. You mm-hmm. know, there's just no. We have no love for that man. And you, I mean, I knew I hated him before I ever heard of George Washington, kind of thing. You know. Yeah. So, and I also do not like, like, every time I open my wallet and, you know, want to buy a taco, I have to look at his face. Because it's just distracting. Because it's just like, oh, yay, tacos. And then you open your wallet and it's like, oh, yeah, my poor ancestors marched at gunpoint by the U.S. Army. So, yeah, I mean, I'm cool with getting Jackson off the 20. Right. We'll keep the town in Florida and the town in Mississippi named after him, take him off the money. But, I mean, then it's the question of who who replaces him. Mm-hmm. What do you think? 
Well, I mean, I also grew up in Ooh, Montana. There's almost like, like a, the, a Republican debate. Who should replace him? <laughs> and then what's your Secret Service code name? Wait, you're supposed to be encouraging me to want to keep talking. <laughs> like, I mean, I also grew up in Montana. And I mean, one of the people being bandied about, right, is Jeanette Rankin. And I mean, she is such a fascinating figure. I mean, she's the first woman who was in the House of Representatives. And she's the only person who voted against World War One and World War Two. Which you would think, like, Montana's a pretty, like, macho state. And I think most people there are generally cool with our entrance into World War II. But pretty much across the board when I was growing up there, I mean, there's a statue of her in my hometown. Like, we were all really proud of this. And we were all proud of her and the idea that she would vote her conscience, whether you agreed with her or not, you know. So, I mean, she's, I think, she could be an interesting contender. Sarah Val, author of Lafayette in the somewhat United States. Thank you, Sarah. You're welcome. You might know Sarah's other books, Unfamiliar Fishes, The Wordy Shipmates, Assassination Vacation, The Partly Cloudy Patriot. Those are all good titles. Thank you. Yeah, good job. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara, and the senior producer is Joel Patterson. We shall speak with you on Monday. <laughs>